0: Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold, This charge I have received from my father. 1 John chapter 3. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Well, we are continuing our time in the season of Easter. It's now the fourth week in this season. Uh, Last week, if you were here, you may remember we had Tom Kelby, the new president of the Table Fellowship, which is the new name for the restructuring of the Alliance for Renewal Churches. So a very helpful thing I've begun to do about that mnemonic is instead of saying ARC with three letters, I just say TF because it's only two letters. And I don't know why, but that's working really well for me. So hopefully that blesses you. We also had a person from uh, Bangladesh who was a leader in the churches there. He is a a head of a denomination called the Free Christian Churches of Bangladesh. And praise be to God, our church gave extremely generously. We raised $7,000 for that church. So we, we, if you remember why that's so encouraging to us is our deep love for Tom and who the ARC has been to this church. Without them, we would not exist. But also we deeply appreciate what those Bangladeshi pastors are doing. We remember they said they had 400 churches and they have 43 staff. So you think about our church, we have about eight staff. Or so. It's kind of fuzzy because we don't pay all of them. <laughs> um, and we have one church, and our church, most of our, I think our church is about, it's below their average size of a congregation. So when you think about what they're up against as a pastor, it's right that we give sacrificially to that. We're going to be talking a little bit about that tonight in ways that we can partner together for the sake of evangelism. So in this season of Easter, what has been so wonderful about recognizing the resurrection once again and focusing, taking time to remember the details of the resurrection is the Lord has been, through these readings that we're we're examining, has been reminding us of the importance of the church and not just attending church, but being the church. If you remember back to Easter, if you were here with us, we talked about how Paul gave the Corinthians two statements that looked very similar. He said, for I received what I gave to you. And in chapters 11 and 15 of 1 Corinthians, he relates that to the Lord's Supper and the history of the gospel. And we saw how both of those were a reception of truth, a reception of a sacrament, the Lord's table, and then a communication of that truth and tradition to the Corinthian church. And this is Paul's pattern. And so now Paul is saying, now when you come and you assemble together, you are proclaiming the Lord's death. What was Paul doing when he was preaching? Remember what he said to the Galatians, before whom Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Isn't that an interesting thing that he says? That's one of my favorite things from our time in Galatians, this last last go around, was Paul is saying that through his preaching, the Galatians saw Jesus crucified. That's a phenomenal statement about the importance of preaching. But here's, here's the amazing thing is Paul then says to these Corinthians, he says, when you come together and you proclaim the Lord's death at this table, you are proclaiming it. It's not just a memory thing. It's a testifying. We are doing something today as a people of God. We have been singing together. We have been hearing the word together. We're now listening to the preached word of God. And and here in just a few minutes at the culmination of our service, we're going to gather around the table to remember the chief reality by which we are saved, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the Christian life does not stop there. And that is what I hope to show in John 10 and 1 John chapter 3. Is We have not just been given new life in Christ, but now because of the Holy Spirit which renews us, we now get to, not have to, although we do have to, we get to imitate the manner of Christ's death. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Being a Christian is not different than being a disciple. There are not two categories. You cannot simply believe and not become a disciple. There's no there's no difference between those two things in the scriptures. And so, as those who believe, we ought to continually press on to maturity. And John, in his epistle here, gives us a wonderful test of maturity. Are we living like Christ lived? And so, my desire today is to show how we have to imitate the Good Shepherd. It's not enough that we come to the Good Shepherd to receive his forgiveness and grace. We then, as Christians, have to imitate him. And, and I'm going to press out and fully explain what I mean by that. But, but know this, we do not imitate Christ in a different way than he obeyed. That's where this is going. So I want to look at five things today from these two readings. First is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ as the good shepherd of the sheep. I want to look at his work of gathering together the church, that wonderful communion of saints who is from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I want to look at his voluntary offering in which he reveals something about his heart. One of the reasons I love John's gospel is John is constantly showing us by the Holy Spirit things that are happening underneath the, the, the surface. He's showing the motivation of Jesus as he goes to the cross. Then I want to look at how we imitate Jesus Christ and then finally the confidence that we have which is expressed through obedience. Where all of this is going is John wants us to know not simply that we believe in Christ but that through our obedience that we know the spirit resides in us and that we have true fellowship with God. John's test is you cannot have true fellowship unless there also is spirit-led obedience. And so so while that may seem a little bit tenuous, or you might think, hmm, I'm not sure if I'm truly obeying by the Spirit. On the contrary, the writers want you to pass the test. They want you to know that you have real fellowship with the triune God. That's where all of this is going. That's why Christ died. And that's why we obey. So, Jesus Christ teaches in this passage in a parable. And the reason Christ uses parables is so that we will listen longer rather than shorter. He's not going through a systematic theology here, he's using a parable so that those who want to know or want to learn what he's saying have to listen deeply. If you ever watch a story or watch a movie, uh, read a story, watch a movie, if you ever go to a play, you have to pay deep attention. I am trying. It's probably bad that that I'm doing this at night. I am trying to read the Iliad. And it is very difficult to keep in in mind where all the characters are and who they are. It's very difficult. I probably shouldn't do it before I go to bed. (laughs) I haven't made it very far that way. But the point is, when we're listening to stories or parables, we have to listen deeply. We have to pay deep attention. And that's what Jesus wants us to do with his word. He wants us to mine for gold in these parables. He says, I am the good shepherd. Notice he does not say, I will pay the atonement for sin. He says he's a shepherd, He's using a reality that he made on this earth to communicate something true about himself. And in fact, what we believe about how true God is, Jesus Christ is the real shepherd and every shepherd you've seen or heard about, those are just imitation shepherds. You see, the image points to a greater reality. Jesus Christ is the one who's going to gather his people. How will he do this? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Conversely, what does a bad shepherd do? He's going to get there, right? A bad shepherd would let the sheep go, ever, go wherever they want. A lazy shepherd would not take the sheep into new pastures. A terribly rebellious shepherd, let's say he's you know, working for an employer or a bad son working for a, a tyrannical father, he would just abuse the sheep and belittle them and hit them this is not what a shepherd is supposed to do. The shepherd is supposed to cultivate. He's supposed to work the flock and protect it and bring it to good places to eat. And so Jesus immediately takes aim at false teachers and cowardly leaders. At this time in Israel, there were many false messiahs. And in fact, Jesus prophesies that after he comes in the book of Matthew and through 22 through 25 he talks a number of times about false teachers false shepherds and jeremiah if you remember also had that he had a great controversy yahweh through jeremiah had a great controversy with the shepherds of israel because they abuse the sheep and they they squander their inheritance they they disrupt the flock and so jesus is taking aim at those sorts of shepherds who will not Protect the flock against wolves. In another place in the scriptures, wolves are called false teachers. That's the way that the imagery is used there. He doesn't use that imagery here, but it's important to see the connection. There's not just false teachers who try to rule over the flock harshly, there's also false sheep who try to come into the flock and try to pretend that they're sheep. But we're going to see Jesus even knows how to spot them. Verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep. So who owns the sheep? Jesus Christ. He owns the sheep. He who is a hired hand, not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Coincidentally, I had this very brief, m- fearful moment as my wife and I were about to drive here. Someone c- brought a dog a- along the sidewalk, and this was a big, dark, mean-looking, wolf-looking-like dog. And it was the most amazing. We both were terrified for about one second. We just It didn't look like it was on a leash. It looked like it was just a stray Dog, And in fact, actually, there have been sightings of coyotes out in the Miamisburg area. And, and they're, they're not here, so don't be afraid. But <laughs> the point that I'm getting at is it was terrifying. It looked, if you've ever seen the Chronicles of Narnia, there's that Urfus wolf. What's his name? Urus wolf. There's, there's some, he's the captain of the witch's army. And, and, and Lewis uses a wolf to symbolize this right? What do wolves do when they get a hold of sheep? They eat them. They kill them. Wolves have fangs. Do you see how Jesus uses a parable here? He wants you to think about it. What we do with the scriptures so often is we hear, oh, Jesus is the good shepherd. That means he's going to lay his life down. Oh, that's the cross, period. We truncate we, we don't spend enough time in his word to tease out or, or to, to suck out all of the meaning and the, the marrow of what is there. The sheep need protected from the wolves. Sheep do not have natural defenses against the wolves, they need a shepherd. Back in Genesis, it says that God, that there were no uh, uh, shrubs in the field. Why? Because there was no rain and because there was no man to work the ground. Sheep were designed by God to need a shepherd so that he could communicate something about his son. Moving on, verse 13, he flees, the hired hand flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So conversely, we know not only is Jesus the good shepherd, not only does he own the sheep, but he cares deeply for the sheep. This is not a business, This is a flock. This is, in a very real sense, a family. Those who turn at the first sign of trouble, therefore, are faithless. They have no faith. And they not only have no faith, they are untrustworthy. So the person who's exercising faith here, Jesus Christ as the good shepherd, is a trustworthy shepherd. He is a right shepherd. It is okay to believe him and trust him. Because the hired hands run at the first sign of trouble, the sheep are scattered. Have you ever seen one of those wilderness documentaries or a safari documentary where the lion is going after the gazelle? What happens to the flock of gazelle? They all turn every direction. And who's devoured? It's the weakest one. It's the one who doesn't know how to run away. Usually the child or the the young gazelle. The the idea here is that these wolves are coming and they will scatter the flock unless someone does something about it. So Christ as the good shepherd, therefore both knows his flock and is known by them. Again, this is very different than a business. It is a relationship. Jesus testifies about his own relationship with the father through mirroring his relationship with the sheep. Verse 14, he restates what he's already said. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. You see, there's a difference between knowing someone and being known by them. I know John Piper. John Piper doesn't know me. Right? There's a very different, I can't call him my friend because there's no communion. I know things about him. I know things that he's said I've been deeply blessed by his ministry, but I have never met him and probably won't. The point is, the relationship that Jesus has is not a one-way street. He doesn't just know his sheep, his sheep know him. And this is great in two ways. This is We do not have a fake Jesus or a Jesus who cannot be known or a Jesus who is simply too mysterious for us to understand or to meet or to have a relationship with. And moreover, Jesus says that he has reiterated or redone his relationship with the father in his relationship with the sheep. Look at this again, verse 15, just as the father knows me, just as in the same way the father knows him, you know him. Now, not to the same degree or perfection, but in the same quality, that is to say, In the same reality, there is truth in what you know as a sheep about your shepherd. He does not communicate to you in lies. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is is reiterating the relationship between he and his father in his relationship with he and the sheep. And this communicates a great importance and a great Uh, dignity and significance to his sheep he does not gather sheep to himself to lord it over the sheep in fact we're going to see he actually becomes the servant of all in the way he relates to the sheep i wanted to show this this is if you've been uh in our teaching here at gcf for a number of years you may have heard of this term chiasm And it's important to see occasionally in the Bible that chiasms are very important. We're going to look at two of them today. This first one here is just showing that he has taken that first statement in verse 10, I am the good shepherd, I lay my life down for the sheep, and he's taken it and separated it. You can imagine a piece of, like a a bun or a piece of bread, you cut it in half, and now he's going to fill in some meat and toppings here in the middle uh 14b, I know my own, my own know me, the father knows me, and I know the father. Do you see what deep communion the shepherd has in his heart? He wants them to know who he is. He wants them to have true relationship. The father's perfect knowledge of the son, therefore, is the grounds. It's the foundation for the son receiving a charge from the father in order to lay his life down. The father knows that Christ is trustworthy. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The bad shepherds run at the first sign of trouble. They don't sacrifice themselves when the wolves are coming against the flock, but I'm the good shepherd and I'm going to step between you and the wolf. And so the father, because he perfectly knows the son from all eternity, designates the son to complete the task of redemption by the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives him the task and the charge and Jesus faithfully returns the call. Through Jesus's teaching, therefore, we see his heart. We're not just learning things about the way that Christians were saved. We're learning about the Christ who saves us. We're learning about the sort of nature of the one who has paid our penalty. He is not just a God who is aloof, who is forever angry with sinners and therefore has to punish his son. That is true, however, at the same time, in no in no opposition to the idea that sin is destructive Christ has deep desire to lay his life down it is not something that he is wanting to put off he is eager to accomplish his goal verse 16 i have other sheep that are not of this fold i must bring them also they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock one shepherd what did he say earlier My sheep know me. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the the flock that he's talking to knows him, so also these other sheep are going to know him. We saw two weeks ago how it was a wonderful privilege that we have been given the scriptures. And how many of us, when we think about the privilege of being an apostle, we think, oh, it would have been so good to know Jesus Christ in the flesh. But what he says here is I have other sheep and they're going to come. I'm going to draw them and they're going to know me just like my other sheep that are already in the flock. I'm going to gather them and they're not going to be second class citizens late in time and hardly acquainted. They're going to be full parts of the flock. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. What did, what did Paul write? There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one Lord Jesus Christ. This is who the church is. There is one flock. Jesus' teaching, though, contains a very radical idea that is extremely easy to miss. And this is why he uses a parable. He wants his hearers to think about this. Who is he communicating to in this, in this teaching? He's talking to his disciples and probably, I, I don't know the context as well as I should, some of the Pharisees are listening here. So he's saying, some of you are my sheep. We do learn in Acts that a great number of the Pharisees believe after the resurrection and Pentecost. Nevertheless, he's saying, there are some who are in my flock and there are others who I'm going to have to bring. Therefore, we see what Jesus is teaching is the laying down of his life will radically alter the makeup and the nature of his flock. It's not enough to be an Israelite and claim to be part of Christ's flock. You have to know Christ, and Christ, moreover, has to know you. When we consider, therefore, the larger context of the history of Israel, we are not surprised at all that Jesus has used this parable about being a shepherd. The people of Israel considered themselves to be a shepherding people If you remember, in the time of Joseph, when his brothers come down to Egypt, he tells his brothers, say to Pharaoh that you are shepherds, as our fathers have been. Abraham is a wandering and nomadic shepherd. Later, Joseph and his brothers are shepherds. Later, we see what is King David doing? He's a shepherd. Who does he say is his shepherd? Psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd. So now that we're teasing out this parable, we're, we're, we're looking longer, we're, we're trying to dig deeper. What is Jesus saying by calling himself the good shepherd? He's God. He's not just someone who takes care of his people, he's the God who lays down his life for the sheep. The implications here are massive. Psalm 103, this is just one verse of dozens of verses in the Old Testament that talk about the people of Israel being the flock of God. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Coming through English, the word pasture is the same word that we get pastor from. If you've ever heard of pastoral music, it's not music that pastors listen to. It's, it's music that was created for countryside themes. I'm sure the Burks can correct me on my definition there, but that's, uh, I'm trying to approximate here. It's music that's created to give a scene. It's, it's talking about the countryside. It's talking about the place where sheep live and find food and find rest and find water. And so Jesus is not just saying, I'm going to lay down my life. He's saying, I'm the God of Israel. And everyone who heard him probably knew what he was saying. The point is this, that the Jews understand themselves as God's flock. And so for Jesus to be saying, there are sheep who are not in this fold, the only possible understanding is that there is going to be a great change in the nature and scope of the identification marks of God's people. It is not enough, and indeed it never was enough, to claim that they are sons of Abraham. They must be known by the shepherd and they must know the shepherd, just as the shepherd knows the father and the father knows the shepherd. So what Jesus is saying is the sheep who are not of this fold have to be Gentiles. He's not just saying, oh, we're here in Galilee or we're here in Judea and I've got to go to other parts of Israel. He's saying this, your understanding of where the boundaries of the, sh- the sheepfold lie is totally wrong. It's never based upon the national identity. It's always based upon those who know Christ. And indeed, the rest of the New Testament bears this out. Ephesians 2.14 says that he broke down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. He's made them one flock. So surely the Jews are offended at the prospect of the resurrection. Jesus says, I lay my life down and I will take it back up. They were scandalized by that idea. But perhaps, and this is just me speculating, perhaps they were more offended at the idea that there there was another flock that was going to be engrafted. I think that's what actually set themselves off. Resurrection from the dead in the mind of an Israelite at this time is a totally unthinkable proposition. In fact, the Sadducees were a group of religious teachers who actually maintained that there would never be a resurrection, that people just die and that's it. The Pharisees did believe in a resurrection, but they didn't understand what it would be like. The scriptures plainly teach that there will be a resurrection. The Old Testament is filled with statements. And so when Jesus says, I have the right to lay down my life and to take it back up, they were possibly offended at even the concept of the resurrection, but they were absolutely, definitely offended that a human being would boast that he has power to do something once he's dead. That is who Jesus Christ says he is when he says, I'm the good shepherd. Do you see how important it is to not just say, oh, he's gonna lay his life down, that's the cross, let's move on to the next story. Because what he's showing is he's showing himself. He's revealing to his sheep. He wants his sheep to know who he is and he's revealing to his sheep the power, the eternal power that he has as the son of God. As I said, they were probably more offended at the idea that the flock was going to expand even more than the offensive nature of the idea that some person would be instrumental in their own resurrection. John has recorded clues about this all throughout his gospel. And if you're looking for something to do with either your family tonight after the church meeting, or some study in the week, take a look at these verses in John. John 1, 4, and 7 have over and over again stories and accounts in which Jesus is warring with the Pharisees who want to kill him. And he's escaping from their threats and their their persecutions, for it wasn't time for him to die yet. After this point, in just two chapters, when Jesus is entertaining some Greeks, some Some Greeks want to ask him for a meeting. Jesus then says, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And by glorified, in John's gospel, he means crucified. That is where Christ's glory was clearly seen. In fact, the whole book of John turns on a hinge at that moment. There's all of this ministry that Christ does, and then after these Greeks, the the people who were in a different flock who were coming into this flock, as soon as they start to come, Jesus identifies, now I have to go to the cross because that's why I've came. I've come to bring together one flock for all time. Ironically here, the announcement that Jesus is going to unify these wayward sheep and to bring one flock and to be a good shepherd for them, it doesn't unify those who hear him, it actually causes a deep division. Just outside our reading, if you look down at verse 19, it says there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. You see, God's word cleaves. There is a left and a right when God's word falls. And God brings his word in order to, like a master surgeon, cut open the hearts of wretched sinners and cut out the cancerous nature of sin and bring them back to new life. That's what Jeremiah said, I will put in you a heart of flesh. And Jesus says some words, and it causes a division. So is Jesus the author of division? No, God is not the author of division. Nevertheless, even when promoting the true, clear, pure gospel, there are those who will not receive it. So, Jesus continues in this passage to unfold his perfection and he reveals something about the eternal love of the Father. Here there is no doubt at all in the Father's mind whether or not the Son will accomplish the task of, of the redemption. He will complete it. Verse 17, "For this reason the Father loves me because I lay my life I lay down my life that I may take it up again." That's a very interesting thing for the eternal Son of God in the flesh to say that the reason the Father loves the Son is because of what he's going to do in time. This I am going to leave at the surface layer of simple mystery. We can never fully understand the perfection of the love of the Father for the Son and the Son's love of the Father which urged him to obedience nevertheless And we will press it out just a little bit. I'm convinced that what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to see this is how glorious your God is. The eternal Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father, and he wants to do the Father's will. Verse 18 No one takes it from me, not even the Father but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. I'm reminded of this verse every time. I think back to Moses and Aaron who have these staves, the sign of authority and they cast it down and it becomes a serpent. If you were here during the men's breakfast, we talked about the bronze serpent that is wrapped around the pole that Moses shows to the Israelites. And they look upon that bronze serpent and are spared from the fiery serpents that try to bite at their heels. Nevertheless, Jesus is saying, I have the authority to lay my life down. For every human being, when we think about what we can do, our agency stops when our breath stops. The dead do not praise you, O God. Amen? Amen? You have not pondered too much about this, but nevertheless, I'm not making any plans for the five minutes after I die. I'm not I'm not ever going to do that because I will no longer be in the body and in some very real sense I will trust in the promises of God if God get, grants me the grace to persevere to the end I will trust in his promises and I will cling to them and I will hope that everything that he said is true because I know him nevertheless Jesus is not talking like a mere human he's saying he's going to do something once he's dead I lay my life down and I'm going to take it up again. That's phenomenal. Christ's words in this passage are structured in such a way as to highlight the beauty of what he is teaching. And in fact, this is our second chiasm here. If you notice on the outside of the chiasm, the father loves me, and I have received this charge from the father. They go hand in hand. The inner part B, I lay my life down that I may take it up again. And then he repeats himself And he says, I have authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. But what's at the center of this chiasm? No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You see, most of us, when we think about the crucifixion, we may be tempted to think that Jesus is just being caught by this band of robbers who come to arrest him or simply falsely accused by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But what did Jesus say to Pilate? You would have no authority over me unless it was granted to you from heaven. No one takes my life from me. Christ's crucifixion was entirely his decision. No one took his life from him. He gave it up completely freely and yet mysteriously, As he says at the end of verse 18, he received a charge to do it. This actually teaches us, it's not just the good shepherd we're seeing. This is the good father and the good son. We're seeing so much more in Christ's teaching than just simply, oh, he's going to go to the cross. He's showing us who God is. He's the God who wants to redeem a people and gather them together to make a flock who he will protect at the cost of his own life. This is the God who has entered in time. He took on a body to become killable. And therefore Jesus says, come to me, my sheep. And we do come. So paradoxically, though Jesus lays down his life freely, he has received a charge. And I will readily admit, I don't know how this works. It's right for us as those who read the scriptures to be confused from time to time or not simply confused, but just be able to say, I don't know how this works. Deuteronomy 28 says that the written things are for us and for our children, but the hidden things belong to God. There are parts of doctrine, which it is no longer appropriate to try to press into. And for me, I'm going to say, I don't know what this fully means. What it does mean What I do know it means is it means my Christ is radically loving me as he goes to the cross. He voluntarily lays down his life and yet he has received a charge. This shows not only the beauty of Christ, but also the humility of Christ. We're not just seeing the good shepherd. We're seeing the humble shepherd, the God who hates pride, not because pride is just insidious, but because he's the God who's the antithesis of pride. He's the God who humbles himself to the point of death. Jesus, therefore, is not just a good shepherd. He's not the hired hand. He's the opposite of those who would run from the flock. He's received a charge or a commission, much like you would entrust the family business to the faithful son. Right? If you've ever heard about these businesses, there's a few in our community. Mahaffey's Pies, uh, Trimbox Body Shop, 2J's. We have friends there, so I know about those ones. I'm sure many other businesses have existed where the father and the son work together and the son becomes trustworthy and the father transfers the business to the son. This is what is is kind of in view here. This is how radically obedient Jesus Christ is. He lovingly wants to do the father's will. Unlike the hired hand who flees when the wolf comes, the good shepherd lays down his life and the way he does it is by stepping between the wolf and the flock. When I think about the crucifixion, in my mind's eye, I think about Jesus kind of pulling a jiu-jitsu move on the wolf. And at the same time, the wolf is going for his throat. And with every last bit of effort, as he's dying, he destroys the wolf. That's what I see when I see Christ as the good shepherd. That's who Jesus Christ is. He didn't just defeat sin. He also defeated our great enemies, death and Satan. And because he did that, those who have faith in him have new life in Christ. By laying down his life, Jesus gathered his flock into one. And here's where the rubber meets the road. We must do the same. Now, in saying that, I do not mean, nor would ever teach, That as Christians, we can atone for sin. Our death is not necessary to achieve righteousness with God. We do not need to obey to receive forgiveness from Christ. Nevertheless, as those who have received forgiveness in Christ, who have received the Holy Spirit, who's made us alive, who's caused us to become new creations, we're now invited into the very same love of the Father and the Son in the work of bringing that message of redemption to the world. The song which John hears, the writer of the gospel and the writer of the revelation, the song which John hears in the throne room highlights the lamb's sacrifice. In Revelation 5-9, they sang a new song. They're singing to the lamb on the throne. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Do you see the radical unity of the scriptures here? This is phenomenal to me. By your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And I didn't include the next verse, but it goes on to say, you've made them to be kings and priests. Where in heaven? On the earth. What are they supposed to be doing on the earth? The same John who wrote the gospel and the epistle or the the revelation also wrote the epistles. Having come to Christ as our good shepherd, therefore John writes to us that we must imitate his manner of life, his manner of obedience. By this we know love. See, love is not defined simply by you or me as affirmation of every person or acceptance of every particular lifestyle or tolerating rebellious children and not disciplining them. See, many people have perverted what love means, but love is defined by the God who is love, not by us. And so John says our knowledge of what love is comes from the work of Jesus Christ. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And without skipping a beat, John, because he's an apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit, is able to say, and, the, and we therefore, ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Immediately, we move into hypothetical mode. Okay, he's speaking in a metaphor. And that's true. But how far we press out that idea of John speaking in a metaphor is very important. It is not saying that we should occasionally be inconvenienced or that we should suffer for Christ when someone takes our parking spot at church. He's saying we have to lay our lives down. How did Christ lay his life down that he might take it up again? By going to the cross. Just as Christ laid down his life, we have to do as well. Just as Christ's death brought about a unification and an enlarging of the sheepfold, so our laying down of our lives will have the same effect. And if you've ever done any sort of evangelism, you know how true that is. It costs you something to lay your life down. When we lay our lives down for the flock, for our brothers, therefore, the flock is expanded. Consider what Paul wrote to the Colossians, verse 24 of chapter one. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. I'm not begrudging this. I rejoice in my sufferings, which are for your sake, And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body. If Paul didn't explain what he meant, if there wasn't a clear understanding of the difficulties of Paul's missions, this would be heresy. There was nothing lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the body. Christ perfectly atoned. As we saw in our time in in Holy Week and Easter, he said it is finished and it is finished. By his blood alone are we cleansed from sin. What does Paul, what could he possibly mean? What he means is that Christ was crucified in Jerusalem. And for the information, for the gospel to make it from Jerusalem to Colossae, which is hundreds if not thousands of miles away, there will be radical suffering between here and there. And for me, Paul, to get to Colossae, I will in my body fill up what's lacking. Nothing is lacking in the sufficiency of the atonement. What is lacking is the knowledge of the atonement in the people at Colossae. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. What did Jesus say? I've been given a charge from my father. The stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his holy ones, his saints. That is what Paul is saying. Is there something that's going to, co- it's going to cost me to get this knowledge, this information to you in order for me to preach. The the rest of the New Testament bears this out as we're going to see later tonight at the the business or the church meeting. Paul's responsibility therefore to preach the gospel is an extension of the expression of Christ's love for his people. So Christ loves the flock, he wants to gather them, but in order for them to hear, there has to be a preacher. And so Paul has to go. He's given a task and he goes and he gains them. He gathers them. The obstacles which Paul faced are how he filled up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. Therefore, the disciples of Christ are literally invited into the redemptive plan. I say literally invited because I want to make it plain and clear that if no one ever goes and tells anyone else about the cross of Christ, then they can't. Those people cannot be saved. It is a very dangerous thing that I've heard many times in the evangelical world of of these stories of Jesus just appearing to Muslims in dreams or appearing to Hindus in dreams. I do not believe that the Holy Spirit can't do that. I believe that the New Testament plainly says that's not the way that God wants it to work. Those are not the clear and pure scriptures. And the church has always grown by the blood of the martyrs. It's always required believers in Christ to suffer for the sake of the name in laying down their lives, being willing to be persecuted as they testify to the truth. That is the way the Christian church has filled the world. Not through spurious stories that are unverifiable, that get shared on clickbaity websites. I'm going to end that soapbox. My heart breaks for the people of the world and also for the church to go. They can't get there unless people go. So, though these people who suffer do not atone for sin in any way, nevertheless, there will be opposition. And if they're going to make it, they will have attacks against them daily christians must profess must trust the promises of god crucify the flesh kill sin and live to god and love for their neighbor that's what we've been called the first and second great commandments are love god with all your heart soul mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself what would christ define love as what does john define love as by this we know love that he laid his life down for us John, therefore, rightly warns against callousness in the church. If anyone has the words world's goods or worldly goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in deed and truth. It is necessary as Christian brothers and sisters that we do not simply say be blessed, be filled, be warmed. We have to do something about it. Loving our neighbors, especially those neighbors in the church, is therefore not optional for Christians. It's required. 1 John three nineteen through 20 By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Some people interpret this and say, oh, if our heart's condemning us, we just need to accept more forgiveness from God. I actually read this as John is saying, if you have something in your heart that you know is plainly sin, how much more should you tremble and fear because God knows everything? That's the way I read this passage. And so what I think John is saying is make your calling and election effectual and sure. He's, he's saying make sure that it is real and the way you do that is by love. Our assurance therefore should partly, partly be based on whether or not we're actually obeying the Christian walk, the Christian life. The confidence from obedience, therefore, overflows into and fuels radically sacrificial prayer for the cause of Christ's kingdom. When you hear these promises in the scripture as a believer, that if you do this, then your prayers will be listened to. For example, 1 Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way, that way your prayers will not be hindered. As a rational fleshly man, I hear that and say, I should do nice things for my wife so I can pray for stuff I want. I think that's the complete opposite of what John is saying here. I think what he's saying is that those who trust in Christ and obey his word out of great love for him, fueled by the energy which the Holy Spirit supplies, that those people who put to death sin, By the mercies of God, by the promises of God, they therefore are positioned to pray and have a very welcome audience in the heavenlies. I think that sometimes when we pray, we wonder why the answer is delayed, and yet our lives have no mark of obedience. Mm -hmm. So, what does John say? Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Are you asking for radical things to take place in the world for the cause of Christ and his gospel? Are you praying for the lost heathen world which lives around us? So much of our prayer time and effort is focused upon ourselves. And what I think John is saying is he's he's speaking to people who are laying their lives down for their brothers in the church and are asking god would you be glorified in the sinners around us would you be exalted would you would your grace be made glorious by people finding out the good news and turning from idols to serve the living and true god i think that's what john has in mind whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him that sounds legalistic if you are not listening according to faith. If you're listening according to faith, that is the greatest promise in the world. It's one of the greatest promises in the world. So clear is John's teaching that he delivers us from the temptation of a hypocritical faith. A hypocritical faith says, I trust Christ, but I do not trust him enough to obey. Belief in Christ and works of love, therefore, which flow from that belief, are never opposed in the scriptures. If you remember our time in the book of James, faith without works is dead. John is able to say in this next verse that love of Christ and obedience to Christ are not two, but are one. Verse 23, this is his commandment, singular, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. You see, you cannot believe in the name of Jesus Christ. You cannot truly believe in his name and not love one another. Likewise, you can't simply love people and not know who Jesus Christ is. Christianity is not a humanitarian project to save the bad neighborhoods. It has that in its, in its fruit, in its leaves. It doesn't have it in its root. Christianity will affect the world that, in which we live, But that is not its goal, disassociated or detached from radical love of Jesus Christ and obedience to him. So, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. How wonderful is this love which we've been invited into. We have not just been invited into a state of cleanliness from sin. We've been invited into eternal fellowship with the eternal God. And that is what the cross is all about. Therefore, the eternal Father, Son, and Spirit have made their home in those who have believed in Jesus Christ and have been transformed by his grace alone, through faith alone. Brothers and sisters, we as a church have been given a radical calling to reach the lost with the word of God, which is not our invention. It wasn't our idea. John didn't write this letter after consulting us. He wrote his epistle to the church that we ought to love one another if we truly believe, because that is what God has desired for his people. So when you feel tempted to not lay your life down, what I would encourage you to do is a practice that I have begun to, to do this, this Easter season is when I'm at my wits end, when I'm at the end of my energy and effort, I, I take a moment and I contemplate the resurrection. And I think about the, the promises of God. For example, if the spirit wh- whom raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, he will give you life in your mortal body. That, that's, that's what we are supposed to do is we're supposed to reflect on the love which we've been freely given in Christ and to take that love and let it become a thousand streams of mercy to our brothers and sisters. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that this word would be transformative. We pray that your scriptures would become alive to us. We pray that you would teach us the wonderful experience the way of walking in which we call to mind your word and your promises and we use those as as the anchor for how we obey. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to learn from your word and let our lives be transformed by it. Please do not let us, as James says, to be hearers but not doers also. Lord, we thank you so much for these promises and We thank you that we truly know that you've made your fellowship with us because our obedience comes from faith. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.